0: Today I wanna talk about Adam D'Angelo, the CTO of Facebook, co-founder and CEO of Quora, and of course, OpenAI board member. Um, He's been in the news a ton because of the recent OpenAI drama. He was the one board member who voted to remove Sam Altman as CEO that remains on the board today. Um, And I thought it would be interesting, instead of just giving a bunch of hot takes about what happened with OpenAI, to instead, try and understand who Adam is, how he got to where he is now, and create kind of a broader picture of him really tying together all the research that I could pull from his Quora usage, because he writes a lot, the articles that have been posted about him. He's a pretty private guy. He's done a few podcasts, and I've listened to those and kind of pulled all this together into something that I hope tells a really complete story about his career and, ideally gives you a better idea of who this guy is. Um, it's uh, I've actually met him. I was thinking about doing a video about his career and his dedication to Quora because I found it really, really interesting that he has just been grinding on Quora for so long. I mean, we'll go into this in the story, but um, so many people who made a ton of money from Facebook would have just left and gone and you know, become investors or spun up a bunch of companies, but Adam has been really laser focused on this company, even though it's been through a bunch of, uh, you know, high highs and low lows, and just been a total roller coaster ride. He's actually stuck with it, which um, I think says a lot about him. Um, But let's go back to the beginning and then kind of work forward to the Quora and OpenAI era. Um, You know, he was born in New York in 1984, so he's almost 40 now. Uh, He went to Phillips Exeter High School, this prestigious high school, and, while he was there, he was actually classmates with Mark Zuckerberg, which is how he wound up with Facebook ultimately. Um, And he was a big competitive programmer when he was in high school. In 2001, uh, he was still in high school, he placed eighth at the USA Computing Olympiad as a high school student, and he won a silver medal at the 2002 International Olympiad in Informatics. Um, and by all accounts, he's just like an incredible computer scientist, very dedicated um, programmer, and just kind of a technical genius. But um, as you'll see, he, he's also obviously an accomplished business leader and is not uh, merely an individual contributor when it comes to writing software, although obviously he's he's really, really strong in that area. Um, and the the funniest story from his early high school years is that when as part of a senior project, he builds a product called Synapse Media Player. And this was a, it's, it's basically an MP3 player. You could download a bunch of music, put it into your MP3 player, and then it would track every song that you played and then made playlists automatically. And um, the way the program would figure out your taste, um, zuckerberg kind of explained it is just it's just math there's a screen that you can look at where you can see the probabilities that it's calculated of you playing specific songs after other songs so it's pretty simple probabilities but hilariously they register the domain name synapseai.com which is basically like the most 2023 domain name for you know an AI company that's going to go out and raise like100 million dollar seed round. Um, but of course they're you know high school students and it's very interesting how both Zuck and, and Adam D'Angelo, they, their careers have kind of come full circle in this AI. They start with this AI product and this very simple very narrow music recommendation algorithm and now they're they're working on you know obviously much much larger ai projects but they both kind of stayed interested in that core technology for the last over 20 years now um and so, um, seven months. So they release it in September of 2002, and you know they're 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 claiming that the brain, which is what they call the software, is accurate to one hundredth of a percent. Um, and who knows if that's accurate? I mean, who knows? Like, how do you even judge accuracy on like what you want to listen to next? But as you'll see, these guys are like hype hype masters, as you know, fun high school students just building this project. Um, but seven months after they release it in September of 2002. Uh, the online technology blog, like newsgroup Slashdot.org, which was a huge news uh, website where all kind of tech people would hang out uh, back uh, around in the during the dot-com era. Uh, Slashdot runs an article about Synapse AI and it like blows it up and everyone's talking about it. And the articles are still up, like the discussion board is still up about it. And um, there's a bunch of really interesting comments on there. Um, Someone says, I just found out about the plugin from Slashdot this morning and haven't read up much on it yet, but it appears to factor in how long each song is played. So if you're like me and have Winamp on random play, but then skip over or partway through songs that you don't like listening to, the plugin will still do its work. And this is so fascinating because that's exactly how TikTok works today and how all of these different video recommendation algorithms whether it's YouTube or Facebook or Instagram Reels they all rely on average view duration or how long the viewer or the watcher or the listener spent listening to a specific song or a specific piece of content. So the longer that you're you're engaging with a specific video, it knows that you like that. Now obviously the TikTok algorithm is is way way more complex because uh, it's not it's not just tracking like the genre of the song uh, or the the piece of content. It's it's looking at a whole bunch of other things, what's actually being said in the content, who else who else likes that content. Uh, and it does a, a lot more to it than that. But at the end of the day, a lot of these uh, modern social media algorithms are really just based on how much time you spend on a particular piece of content as an indicator of how much you like it. Um, and so that's how you get into like retention hacking and retention bait and those ridiculous TikToks that are like, stay to the end, like for part two. Um, but they even even as high school students, uh, you know, Adam D'Angelo and Mark Zuckerberg had kind of honed in on attention as a fundamental um, factor in the, in understanding how to build like an effective recommendation algorithm, which is very, very interesting. There's so many other ways you could have built that, but they kind of nailed it. Um, and uh, they had a bunch of interesting copy on their website, SynapseAI.com, which is now completely gone and also removed from the, uh, it's not in the Wayback Machine, you can't find the website, but some people copy and pasted it onto, onto slash dot. So you can see a little bit of it there. And they wrote this hilarious copy for, you know, who is this for? They said, who wants Synapse? And they they write out this big long list of, of who, who the product's for. And they say, listeners of the MP3, students, elevator operators, makers of other media players, programmers, gangsters, punks, nerds, really big nerds, even ones from Yemen. Yeah, plenty of those. Competitors, winners, people who exercise to Rocky music, Will Derringer, audiophile revolutionaries, even Canadians, quality people, gastroenterologists, bums, lots of bums, evil geniuses, classics professors, Chinese people, wine connoisseurs, businessmen, rabbis, dew drinkers, which I think is Mountain Dew drinkers, Sherpas, dictators, professional servants, people with special powers, people who come through in the clutch, you. And then the person who posted this was like quoting this and then he was like, I like them. It was just so funny because You know, everyone who's been through the the Facebook saga has been, um, they've learned, you know, this PR speak. And even though Zuck can go on Rogan and be very uh, casual, um, everyone in tech has basically learn to put a filter in front of what they say because they're gonna be attacked by a million different directions, by the left-wing media and the right-wing media, and everyone's gonna kind of, you know, find something to latch on to, and you could see that, obviously, there's a lot to latch on to in that crazy paragraph, but this really shows that they were just like a bunch of high school kids just having a ton of fun, and they were just, like, writing hilarious copy, and you get a little little taste of this in some of the other early Zuckerberg quotes, but now those have, you know, been completely, removed from his kind of general vernacular. And instead, he's he's very buttoned up when he talks, uh, especially to the media. Um, and so they've been building this Synapse product. It starts, you know, getting some attention and going viral. And there's a company that actually tries to buy it. So this company reaches out and offers Adam D'Angelo and Mark Zuckerberg $950,000 to purchase the the program basically, Um, but it it came with some strings attached. So this company wanted Adam and Mark to go and work at this company for three years. And they both wanted to go to college. So they said, no, they turned down, you know, nearly a million dollars as high school students, which is crazy. Um, So they go to college um, and they even began talking to Microsoft about potentially partnering or buying the product. Um, But Zuck said that, um, Adam and him backed out of talking to Microsoft when they began to suspect that uh, Microsoft was going to rip them off, and so instead of instead of selling it, th- uh, Adam and Mark wind up splitting a twelve thousand dollar bill for a patent, and they're and th- at this point they're confident that the company's future profits will pay off, and they and they were quoted as such in in uh, the the Harvard Crimson, the campus newspaper. Um, so from 2002 to 2006, um, they split up. So Zuck goes off to Harvard and Adam goes off to Caltech to study computer science. And in 2005, Adam is just an insane programmer. He's one of the top 24 finalists in the algorithm coding competition of the Top Coder Collegiate Challenge. Uh, in 2004, he creates an app called Buddy BuddyZoo, uh, which allowed users to upload their AOL Instant Messenger buddy lists and compare them to those of other users. And th- this is kind of like those Twitter screenshots that you see where you see the person's profile picture in the center and then whoever they interact with is close to them based on their, their kind of interaction graph. And this is the start of you know, these graph theory projects that would come to underpin, you know, essentially all of the value at Facebook. Um, So, you know, graph theory is is this mathematical way of assessing who is connected to who on a social network. And that underpins a lot of what makes Facebook work, it also underpins how ads are served, and of course it also underpins how uh, Quora works. All these products are pretty social. They have you know, follower graphs and then that can be used to recommend content more, uh, more accurately. Um, and so in 2004, um, Adam actually joined Facebook shortly after it launched in 2004, um, and it was Sean Parker who convinced Adam D'Angelo to join Facebook. Um, I guess Mark was not telling as much of like the big vision, but it seemed like Sean Parker was really, really great at just uh, recruiting and amping people up to kind of how big this could be. And he was really, really great at kind of um, lighting a fire and making and, and creating this sense of urgency at the company. Uh, I, I, I need to do a whole episode about Sean Parker because he's a fascinating character who's kind of fallen off of uh, the public eye, but is super well respected by anyone who knows him. Um, and so, uh, Adam wound up serving as CTO of Facebook from 2006 to 2008. And he was also the VP of engineering during that time. Not a super long stint, but we should go through, you know, what was happening at Facebook at the time, just to kind of give a uh, a little bit of an overview of what Adam was stepping into at the time. So I'm sure you know a decent amount of this, but 2003 is Facemash, the hot or not site that Mark Zuckerberg built that went viral. And uh, it was very funny because the idea of creating a facebook like a uh, a universal like directory for harvard students had been a general idea. Lots of people have been talking about it, um, but Zuck has this hilarious quote <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> He's just completely calling out the university. He says, Everyone's been talking a lot about a universal Facebook within Harvard. I think it's kind of silly that it would take the university a couple of years to get around to it. I can do it better than they can, and I can do it in a week. <laughs> He's just like so cocky, but you know that's exactly what he does and the rest is kind of history um so in 2004 uh, when facebook is just getting off the ground they're doing that summer out in palo alto Adam D'Angelo actually goes out to Palo Alto and lives with the Facebook founders. But he's working on a different app at this point. He's he's building this thing called Wirehog, which is this file sharing app. And lots of early Facebook people were working on file sharing. It was a very, it was a very difficult computer science problem. So I think it attracted a lot of really great programmers. Um, obviously, before Sean Parker was working on Facebook, he was working with Sean Fanning on Napster. Um, but all of these file sharing apps are very tricky to monitor monetize correctly i think that in the end dropbox and box probably got the model as right as you could have because it's just you know you monetize through corporations and it's it's enterprise software at the end of the day um so you don't have to deal with as much of the as much of the illegal piracy file sharing problems that come up when you're doing something like napster and then obviously. Sean Parker goes and helps work and build Spotify, which was kind of like the legal version of of Napster. So in 2005, Facebook had just finished their Series A in May. They got 12.7 million from Excel partners, and Adam becomes a full-time Facebook employee in 2005. But then he goes back to college for the second half of the 2005 academic year. So, I mean, that, that is just such a crazy thing to do in hindsight now that we know that Facebook is a, is a, such a success. But at the time, you could tell that it was a very messy uh just a very messy early-stage startup. Things were probably growing very quickly, but also breaking left and right. And I don't think everyone had a crystal-clear vision of what Facebook could become. I don't even know if Zuck really understood um, that it could be, you know, this like trillion-dollar company with like, you know, custom hardware and metaverse stuff. All 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 of these things kind of unfolded slowly over the last two decades. Um, but in 2006. Uh, Facebook had just finished launching the high school version and then opened up to everyone who was at least 13 years old. And in 2006, um you know adam is on full time and while he's there he achieves a number of key milestones that people kind of credit with credit him with being responsible for and it's interesting because as you read the reports of you know boz has commented publicly and zuck has public uh, publicly commented and he's taught and adam has talked about what he did while he was there everyone kind of has a different story but they're all really positive um so adam was you know a big part of creating the growth team, which ran the first A-B test for the company and really pulled forward this focus on growth at the company that is interesting because obviously Facebook was growing like weed and had this like viral growth engine, but Adam was able to kind of see forward and, and understand that they needed to accelerate even faster and and really take growth seriously. And so they wound up doing a a, a lot to, to make the site grow even faster. And uh, I think that growth team was actually the team that Chamath eventually joined, but I don't think Chamath came through. Adam, he says that he joined because of Sean Parker, again, (laughs) of course, um, because Chamath had met Sean uh, earlier in Silicon Valley, and I think I think Chamath was at AOL and did a deal with Facebook to integrate Facebook and AOL. But then um, Zuck eventually wanted to undo that deal, and as they were winding that relationship down, Zuck had recruited Chamath to come work on the growth team, and then uh, but but I mean Adam was doing more stuff beyond just growth and A/B testing. He built this uh, system called Pillar, which uh, is a little bit wonky. It's it allows backend server side systems to talk to each other. So if Facebook has one system for, you know, uh, assessing if something's spam, and then another thing for sending an email, and then another thing for managing a friend graph, all of these different server-side processes need to talk to each other. So um, the industry uses what's called RPC, Remote Procedure Call. um, And RPC mechanisms, uh, they connect all of these server-side systems together. And Adam built something called Pillar that Kind of orchestrated all of that uh, now this was eventually replaced by thrift but adam gets the credit for being the first one to kind of like really go and solve this extremely hard problem of of integrating all these different back-end systems um, and uh and i mean in 2007 adam is still cto and vp of engineering and facebook is growing like crazy they've opened up facebook for business and now companies have. Um, pages on Facebook and in 2007 they crossed a hundred thousand pages for different companies so the site was just absolutely exploding and also in 2007 they launched the Facebook developer platform which allowed people to build apps on top of Facebook and this was huge back in the day I mean I, I'm sure you remember like Zynga and Farmville and uh, Spotify grew a ton this way by integrating with the Facebook API and posting what you were listening to there were so many companies that got their start by leveraging the Facebook API it was like, back in the day, it was like it was like rocket fuel for startups uh, to be able to import a social graph. Now everything's closed down. It's very hard to bootstrap a new social network or even a new product on top of like Facebook growth. You can't do it. Everyone uses the Apple iOS contacts import um, because that's still somewhat open. Um, but back in the day, it was all about It was all about uh, figuring out a way to leverage the Facebook developer platform and Adam really helped kind of create the technical foundation for that. And then of course, like, like the, the, the story, you know, he winds up moving on, but Facebook goes public in 2012 and that becomes a kind of a key milestone in the story. But, um, but before Facebook goes public, he's only been there two years full time, but the company's grown a ton. And so uh, Adam leaves to go and start Quora in June of 2009. And in order to help him start Quora, he, pulls this other Facebook engineer named Charlie Cheever to be the co-founder. And Charlie is three years older than Adam. He also did computer science, but at Harvard with Zuck. I think he was probably a senior when Zuck was a freshman. and. Charlie had actually built a database of Harvard of the Harvard student body. Um, but instead of showing like their face, like the Facebook, it showed which dorm the class, your classmates were living in. And of course, this was controversial and Charlie got brought in front of the admin board for it and he had to shut it down. Um, but it was potential, it was very inspiring to like the Facebook idea. Clearly there was like a desire for this because as soon as he built it, it went viral and everyone loved it. Um, and Zuck has called Charlie Cheever a kindred spirit. And after he graduates, uh, Charlie had gone to Amazon and but then got recruited to Facebook. And uh, so after three years at Amazon, um, he uh, goes to Facebook, works with Adam and then winds up launching Quora with uh, with Adam. And it took them basically exactly one year to launch out of private beta uh, after incorporating. And the site has grown a ton. Um, they grew to 100 million users a month really quickly. Now they're doing like 3 or 400 million users a month. But obviously, later in the story, we're going to go into some of the problems with AI and how that might be affecting their 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 usage. And they've also just had a lot of other um, issues with the quality of of the content and different user revolts and people getting upset with monetization strategies and all sorts of different uh, you know r- rises and falls throughout the. Throughout the, the 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 growth and scaling of Quora, um, but really interestingly, a lot of people don't remember this, but Quora was was. About to leave open beta and was getting a lot of heat. They were getting a ton of attention um, because this was the era when Facebook was—they had an IPO, but it was very clear that Facebook was a was a was a massive success and was gonna was gonna become very big. Um, but a lot of people were trying to attack different parts of the Facebook system. So you know, you had Twitter kind of going after these like short little status updates, and then Facebook launched um, you know the ability to just post little text updates. Like they kind of had a similar product already. Um, uh, and then Foursquare was doing uh, geolocation-based social networking where you could check into a physical location. Foursquare never really went anywhere. It didn't become a, a massive success, but at the time um, it seemed like they were going to be you know, potentially as big as Facebook. And people were really excited about them, so Facebook had to fend them off and integrate some geolocation features. Um, And obviously, we we know now that uh, these general platforms that just kind of allow you to do anything um, like TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, these are the real platforms that have stuck around for a really long time because they just kind of allow you to do anything. Um, But at the time, people were people thought the Quora was going to be a very, very big deal because it was just a different way to organize information because it's built as a question and answer site. So users go on, they post a question, and then other people can come and answer, and then people upvote those upvote those answers. And it's a little bit like Yahoo Answers, which was kind of... a just a cesspool of like ridiculous, like just nonsense content or Reddit, which was more community oriented, more of a discussion back and forth. Um, Quora was really trying to build the definitive answer for every single question that could possibly be asked. But Facebook was clearly threatened by this because before Quora leaves private beta, zuck launches a product called facebook questions and everyone was like oh like is facebook going to kill quora before they start i remember this is like a big question um but it didn't really go anywhere and i don't think facebook questions even exists anymore um certainly not in the way that quora does where there's this you know rich taxonomy of questions and answers that can be searched sp- specifically like i think you might still be able to do a poll on facebook or maybe you know ask a question and and you know have that show up in search results somewhere but there's not some dedicated tab for it anymore um, clearly that product just really never went anywhere um but Cora was was extremely hot obviously if, if facebook's attacking them everyone thinks it's serious um and they had really quick growth even before they launched they raised an 86 million dollar valuation which was a ton for back then i mean it's still high for now um, but the heat of facebook was super real at the time uh, they got a series a i don't even think they did a seed maybe Uh, Maybe Charlie and Adam put in a little bit of money to get going, but Benchmark comes in and puts in $11 million at that $86 million valuation. And Matt Kohler joins the board. Um, And I think to this day, Matt Kohler and Adam basically run the whole company. And I don't know that they have a really big board beyond that. Um, But so they launched the product. They're growing. And for a, a while Cora is this really, really? It, it's like it's interesting because it's like it was really hot and really, really well respected, but it had a little bit of the. The, the curse of Clubhouse where all of these major tech influencers and venture capitalists were on it, but there was a big question about how it will cross the chasm. Like I really enjoyed it at the time. There were a bunch of uh, machine learning engineers and, and scientists and historians and all sorts of really interesting people on there. Um, but it wasn't something where, you know, your uncle would be posting like on Facebook. Facebook was just so much more broad appeal. Um, and so even though they're growing, there's a big looming question about where Quora goes long-term and what the product will look like. You know, will they need to run a bunch of ads? Will they be able to get to that large of scale? Will they need to do some sort of other monetization uh, strategy? Um, what's really the value here? And I think Adam is just laser focused on the product and the quality of the information and uh, obsessed with the engineering and designing of, of, of algorithms to really make sure that the, that the, that the answers are high quality um, and less focused on the business model because there's there's so much venture capital available and he's seen in the past that you, know, you don't necessarily need to worry about monetization on day one. If you get really big, the money will be there. Um, but this comes to a head in 2012 when Charlie Cheever steps down and it's an interesting time because you know Facebook had just IPO'd so everyone who was early at Facebook was now super rich and not just on paper they actually had the cash they could easily sell their stakes if they wanted to and sail off into the sunset so you know there's one version of the story where he just wants to chill But there's another there's another theory that, um, you know, maybe Adam fired him or maybe they had a disagreement over product direction. And around this time, there's this kind of sketchy post on Quora that was pretty quickly deleted that I'll kind of read from and we don't know if this is true but the 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 poster says you know i'm doing this anonymously the account was created through tor so good luck figuring out who i am here's the real story in may we read we raised an extra 50 million dollar round it was led by adam and led is a little bit of an understatement because he put in 80 percent of the money this is because no matter how great our technology was no matter how top-notch our team the site was not growing. We still have a ridiculously high engagement rate for 8% of the users, but that number hasn't gone up and nothing else we've done has managed to move the needle to get further users hooked. As you can imagine, this it, this made it hard for us to raise money externally, so Adam stepped in and footed most of the B round himself. So this is where the trouble started. Adam wanted to get aggressive. He wanted to introduce features that would drive the stagnant growth. Uh, You've seen some of these, the Facebook integration, views. I guess they would show you how many views you were getting and that was controversial. Um, Charlie wasn't in favor of any of this. To him, the user came first and growth features would sacrifice that. The final straw was Matt Kohler joining the board at the end of August. Matt's with Benchmark and his involvement is there for the sole sake of getting the website turned around on an upward trajectory and in shape to be sold so he could get a return on his investment. And now this is where it kind of goes off the rails because I'm pretty sure Matt Kohler got a board seat during Series A earlier, so this person doesn't seem really fully informed. Um, maybe it's totally possible that they're just an angry core user who's just writing like a conspiracy theory post. Um, but you know, co-founder breakups are always rough, and um, and 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 like the most important takeaway for me is that. I think that eight percent number is probably directionally correct um i was certainly in that eight percent of people who showed up to quora and were like this is amazing i love this i would definitely like read this all the time but i'm not like every person and that's that's part of the problem with these like you know niche kind of vertical social networks is that they're they're by definition restricting that general type of post so Anyone can go on Instagram and see whatever they like. If you're into sports, you can see sports content. If you're into dancing videos, you can see dancing videos. If you want, if you like Q and A and interesting facts, well, there's a ton of there's a ton of Instagram accounts um, that just post interesting facts and will kind of satisfy that Quora-like experience, but in in a network that is. You know, benefiting from everyone who has these niche interests. And so the algorithms on these broad general purpose um, networks kind of allow for everyone to um, to to get something out of it. And, and, and this really feeds into this um, positive feedback loop where you know, the more people that get on the site, the better it can be, the more they can invest in engineering, the more they can scale, the more ads they can sell, then they can reinvest. And that's why these general purpose platforms are very, very sticky and they last a really long time. I mean, people are still using Twitter, why? Because it doesn't matter that people aren't talking about the things that were popular in 2008 anymore. Um, they're able to talk about anything and, and stick around. Um, and so at this point in 2012, you know, Adam's put all this money into the Series B round. I think Peter Thiel also invested. And um, and he's the CEO. And it seems like he has a lot of control over the company. Um, and at this point, he starts trying to figure out, a- a- Adam tries to start figuring out, like, how to scale this, how to go bigger, how to make Cora really really successful and really big and kind of realized the full his full vision. And so in 2014 he does this 80 million dollar round from Tiger and super interestingly, especially with the open AI news, is Sam Altman brings Y Combinator into this round. And so uh, this rounds at a $900 million dollar valuation. I don't think they were making very much revenue at the time. Um, And it was very interesting at the time because YC, of course, famously only backs like brand new startups. Um, The original deal was, you know, what, Twenty thousand um, dollars for seven percent of your company. You know, you, you wouldn't take that if you're actually a big company or making any money. Um, but I think Sam wanted to try some different things with YC. Go they go bigger with later stage companies, but also bring in nonprofits. And it was really an opportunity for Sam to kind of expand what YC could be and test a bunch of things. Obviously, a lot of these things wound up. Not being the future of YC, and YC kind of refocused recently. But that seems to be a theme of the of the Sam Altman YC era. And so, uh, Sam actually wrote a whole blog post about the decision to bring Cora into the into the batch um, because it was so weird. Uh, and I'll just read it, He said, it's, it's pretty short. He says, this month YC will be participating in Quora's most recent investment round and Quora will be joining this summer's YC batch. This is a new experiment for us. We've funded later stage companies before, but none close to Quora's stage. Our hope is that both the company and the YC community will get a lot of value out of this. We're not sure if it's something we'll do again, Some of our experiments have worked and some of them haven't, but Adam D'Angelo is awesome and we're big Quora fans. So we're very excited to welcome Quora to the YC community. Since it seems out of character for us, we thought we should say something about it. Also, we won't qu- count Quora when we periodically announced stats on the YC portfolio. Although they're participating in the batch like any other company, they're already so far along it doesn't seem fair to include them. So, yeah, obviously if, if YC was all of a sudden like, oh, we had all these unicorns, it would be kind of weird to include Cora because they're kind of already a unicorn when they joined. Um, but um, I actually, I, I was in YC summer 2012 and winter 18, so I wasn't there for this batch and I'm not exactly sure if Adam was like attending every single dinner, I mean he's he's in the area, so it wouldn't have been too difficult. But um, would have been would have been very interesting. But the questions like yeah, like what did Cora get out of this? I think it was really like an ability to go deeper with Sam. Clearly they got along really well. They wound up working together on the OpenAI board, um, and uh, and I think it it, it it was cool that the YC community started growing outside of just these. Big companies like Stripe and Airbnb that have kind of gone on. Um, it was cool to see that YC was having an impact in other places, and I see this today with 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 YC's uh, and what Gary Tan's doing in San Francisco in terms of politics. Um, it's it's it makes YC feel like more of an institution that it's not just like some seed stage venture capital firm that's like commodity. It's like a very special place where where interesting people come together, um, and I've always liked that about YC. Um, And so shortly after shortly after joining yc um adam d'angelo does something interesting and his company is is getting kind of old at this point i mean a lot of people have been there for more than four years you know uh starts in 2009 um if you're on a four-year vest you're done with that in 2013 it's now 2014, 2015, 2016, um, you might be fully vested as an employee and want to move on and go work at a different company. This is very common in Silicon Valley. Um, and keeping keeping um, one of the hardest decisions that early employees need to make is that if they leave, they often have to exercise their stock options. So when you get granted, stock options, let's say that you're super early at a company and the and the founders give you 1% of the company. Well, that will typically vest over a four-year time horizon, meaning that if you stay for two years out of the four, you get half a percent. You stay for one year, you get a quarter percent. And that's great because it, it, it then, you know, you can't just leave on day one and take all your stock. But also, if you're in year four, you don't need to, like, play all these political games not to get fired because you've already vested you know the vast majority of it so it generally aligns incentives but the problem is is that after you leave you typically only have a couple months or maybe a year to actually exercise those stock options and this is difficult because sometimes those stock options can be really really expensive especially if you joined Quora when it was like a you know, a $900 million company, um, it could cost you a million dollars or something like that to, to exercise these options. And now there are certain investors and financial products that will allow you to, they'll, they'll kind of front you the money to help you exercise your stock options. And then they'll take on a portion of the financial risk. Um, and sometimes there's secondary sale programs, but in general, it's pretty difficult to deal with if you're if you're an early early employee and you have a lot of stock. And so what Adam does is he puts out this blog post and says, "Hey, we should change this. Instead of just having a couple months or a year to exercise after you leave, we should extend that to a 10-year exercise window." Which means that you you've worked for 4 years, you got your 1% at the startup, you leave, you don't need to make a decision on to on whether or not you're exercising those stock options and actually buying the stock for 10 years. And this is extremely, extremely employee friendly. I didn't realize this came from Quora. I thought this was something that, um, I know YC endorsed it and I know Sam had put out a blog post saying like, yes, we, we agree with this. It was actually extremely controversial at the time because uh, Andreessen Horowitz, I think it was Scott Cooper, Scott, um, uh one of the one of the partners at Andreessen put out a blog post saying, like, actually, there's a lot of drawbacks to this. I don't know if you should do this. And there was a little bit of a debate at the time on whether or not this was the right move, but regardless it was extremely friendly to employees uh which is just kind of interesting it's just it's just like it's kind of unnecessary for you know most like many companies don't give stock options at all it, obviously it's standard in silicon valley startups to give stock options to employees pretty much every employee gets some stake in the business um but this this 10-year exercise window effectively makes it easier for employees to leave the company because they don't have to they don't have to make this decision on whether or not to to Put up the money to buy their to buy their stock, and so it was just a very very friendly, very interesting um, moment in Silicon Valley history. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, Cora, just moving on from that, Cora um, is continuing to raise money, and they're and they're continuing to grow. They haven't really done a lot of ads, but they are growing the number of users on the site and the amount of traffic. They're an SEO machine. I mean, I'm sure you've seen every time you Google something, if it's like a specific question, core always pops up. And so the actual traffic to the site is still growing. And so in 2017, they raised an $85 million Series D, from collaborative fund and Y Combinator, and they hadn't done any ads because Adam had said that ads can be negative for user experience. Uh, but then, you know, eventually they had to try other monetization mev- uh, methods. They tried uh, Quora Plus subscription program. They tried a bunch of different things, like you know, hiding certain answers behind paywalls, um, doing all these different things to try and make money. But nothing really works better than ads, and you know, ultimately the majority of the revenue winds up coming from ads. And It's, and and, and I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Whenever you're driving a ton of traffic to a specific place, ads are always gonna be a great monetization method because it allows you to price discriminate. Obviously, if someone's on Quora looking for, say, you know, what car is the best, you can sell them a car that's gonna be a very valuable customer conversion. So, you know, Toyota or Tesla or BMW might pay, you know, hundreds of dollars to to put an ad in front of someone at that moment, um, as opposed to if someone's on there asking about, you know, how to beat Minecraft or how to beat Fortnite. Like that's not a very economically valuable place to be advertising, um, but, but a, a dynamic, you know, programmatic ad network allows for you to capture you know a couple cents of revenue from the from the casual low economic value um user while also capturing a ton of money from the person who's there researching insurance or or something that's really really valuable Um, but there's a problem obviously on quora because there's there's this it kind of muddles the water of authoritative info like if you're asking you know what car is best and then the promoted post is is paid for Um, it doesn't feel exactly the same as on facebook or instagram where you're just seeing like a feed of general content you see a cat video and then you see you know some music thing and then all of a sudden you see an ad for a car it doesn't feel like you're being sold on the exact thing that you're trying to learn about and so um always a little bit of a struggle there and then obviously um Cora just has this like kind of kind of niche community that's never that's never fully broken out into the mainstream um, but you know obviously Cora has you know moved through a lot of these problems it's kind of unclear how profitable they are at this point um, but Adam is still working at the company and still and still growing this thing and still focused on it, which I think is probably the biggest takeaway here is that um, so many other people would have just, bounced and he didn't, which is very fascinating to me. Um, but uh, there's been a couple, a couple deep dives into kind of his leadership style. And he's always been described as inflexible. There was someone who was quoted as saying that in in all of their time working with him at Quora, he's never seen someone convince him to change his position on anything, which is kind of crazy. Um, on, on the one hand, like that sounds rough (laughs) sometimes um but on the other hand like sometimes it's just good to have the buck stop with someone and someone say hey look i'm the ceo and i'm going to be responsible for this decision now you hope that they make really good decisions and if they don't you're kind of frustrated because you're sitting there with like a i told you so but you're not the ceo so you can't do anything and you might just need to leave to go somewhere else Um, but it is it is a very interesting um, an interesting structure. He has kind of a similar setup to Mark Zuckerberg uh, in that it seems like he can't be removed. He really only has one other voting board member, Matt Kohler at Benchmark, who kind of just has his back. And then um, he's just been maniacally focused on, on building Quora. But they've had a ton of struggles throughout the years i mean they've tried to reinvent themselves multiple times they didn't want to show ads there's always this uh, there's always this big question about how how big is the market because they have this they have this inflexible structure and not everyone wants to just surf q and a all day and in general, like these general platforms wind up winning when they can just surface whatever content the user wants. So if you like facts, you can follow a bunch of fact accounts on Twitter or on Instagram or even on TikTok and, and, and you'll get that, but then you'll also capture the people who want music or the people who want sports. Um, And so the 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 Q&A format has a little bit of a fundamental limitation in that the low hanging fruit gets picked early and then what's left is too specific to be answered meaningfully. And Stack Overflow has kind of managed this by a running itself on a shoestring budget. It's it's always been kind of a a lean team over there. and then also stack overflow is the definitive site for a specifically lucrative market of programmers so you're on there answering programmer questions and you can sell them you know everything from like aws credits to new laptops like it's a very lucrative market and so even though even though it's a small niche it's a profitable niche whereas quora some people are on there just learning about all sorts of like history and, and random things, and it's not it's not universally uh, it's it's not the first place that a lot of companies would go to advertise. Whereas Stack Overflow definitely is, um, but there's still a huge question on how AI has been affecting Quora because Stack Overflow was uh, I didn't realize this, but during 2022 they doubled their headcount to 525 people. So they really, really scaled up. But then ChatGPT launched at the end of 2022. And the, the traffic is insane. The Stack Overflow traffic cut in half right after ChatGPT launched. And you have to assume that that something similar happened to Quora, which of course makes a lot of people think that, hey, maybe this was like a catalyst for the open AI drama. I don't necessarily know that know know that if that's true know that that's true. Um, you kind of need to make up your own mind about it, but um, it definitely precipitated a a need to rethink the core strategy since the like the base model of just trying to um, answer every question and and rank in Google search results um, was was going to need to shift now that so many people go to ChatGPT for those exact type of questions. I mean, if I have a question that I think Cora could answer, I'll almost always ask ChatGPT because it's just faster and the app works really, really well and there's no ads or anything. It's just, I have a a, uh, paid subscription and it's fantastic. Um, And so, um, you know, As Quora tried to monetize, they tried a bunch of different things. And most people, you know, the big fans, they didn't mind paying, but um, a lot of the monetization came with costs, and it led to you know junk answers and junk questions because people are trying to kind of game the system. Or whenever there's a economic incentive, people will try and spam, and this creates a big cost on the Quora engineering team. And people are promote on there promoting MLM businesses. I saw one <laughs> like thread of questions that was just like people trying to like farm Quora karma by asking like, "Do you like chicken? Do you like pork?" do you like beef, you know? Obviously there's a big question about where Cora goes in kind of the new era of uh, LLMs and AI. Um, but what's interesting to me is that he had actually joined the OpenAI Board of Directors all the way back in 2018, five years ago. And and I listened to a, uh, like an interview with him where he's talking about, do you think AI could answer questions like Quora? And even though he's on the inside and he sees exactly what OpenAI is doing, he says, no, I don't, think, I don't think AI will be able to do that. And it's just fascinating. I don't think he was lying. I don't think he was, you know, uh, like like actually saw it coming. I think no one saw the power of these large language models getting so much better so quickly. I think it was very, very, I, th- I think it took everyone by surprise, even the people who were inside at OpenAI. Um, and I think that's just, I, I think that's just like, a, something very, very important to keep in mind. I don't think anyone at OpenAI had, you know, a 10-year a, a plan that, that they were executing against that perfectly matched uh, what has happened uh, in, you know, developing this this massive, sensational, uh, successful uh, consumer application and all the breakthroughs in, in, uh, in just like, consumer adoption like people are actually using ai now (laughs) like they weren't for so long um and so earlier this summer adam d'angelo signed this ai statement saying mitigating the risk of extinction from ai should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war and this is not a full-on doomer statement i mean everyone like tons of people in ai um Sign this, and it's not an unreasonable statement. It, it it really just says like, hey, let's take this thing as seriously as as other really serious things, which I think is reasonable. Um, and so um, he he's been he he's been kind of branded a doomer, but I really don't think he is. I think he's very focused on commercialization and believes that AI can be a a net good. Um, I think he I think I think all of his actions kind of align with um, being. You know, generally optimistic about the impact that AI can have. Obviously, he takes safety seriously, which I think is the correct uh, is the correct framework um, to you know build great products that benefit people while you know taking some safety into account and thinking things through before you launch them and and release them. Um, and so, speaking of releasing things, he um, uh, kind of uh, you know adopted a lot of. Uh, what was going on in ai and tried to build a product a new product at quora that could take advantage of everything that was happening in ai and large language models and he builds this product called poe uh, and it's essentially an ai app store you download this app or i guess you go to the website too and you can interact with any large language model so open ai anthropic bard and um, Bing and all of, these different, all of these different ones because they all have slightly different capabilities. Some of them allow for longer text to be input. Some of them have image capabilities. There's all sorts of different models. Some of them are really cheap, some of them are expensive, some of them are slow, some of them are fast. And it's an interesting value proposition. I didn't get hooked on it. I downloaded it and I subscribed and paid, um, but it wasn't super useful to me just because the ChatGPT app is generally easier to use and, and solved most of my problems. Um so I I never really used it all that much, but um, but it was an interesting strategy in the sense of like creating this portal. I think you described it as like the the, the Netscape navigator of the AI era, uh, kind of like the, the a, a new a new portal. Um, and there seems to be, you know, a desire for all of these companies to kind of go upstream and create something with a something with a network effect, something with some some uh, like a moat on top of all of what are, potentially commodity technologies. Um, there's certainly a worry that all the large language models become uh, commoditized. No one really cares which any of them, which one they're using. They're all training on the same data with roughly the same code on the roughly the same machines. And so they're roughly equivalent. And so having uh, just being the app that someone opens before they use them, it, that clearly has a lot of value. And there's a question about like how much was this motivated by Quora struggling because of AI and and watching the you know site traffic decline. We don't have data on Quora site traffic. Um, we can we can kind of guess based on the Stack Overflow numbers. Um, but regardless, like if Quora is going to IPO, which they were rumored to be planning in 2019, they were planning to go public at a four billion dollar valuation. But now, obviously, the the markets are wildly different. The SPAC market is closed, and uh, valuations are way down, um, having a new narrative around AI and, and, and framing yourself not as a company that's going to get disrupted by AI, but, um, but a company that's going to thrive in the new AI era, uh, would put a lot of, a lot of attention on the stock and could potentially be a really, really big opportunity if it, if it pans out. And this, this Poe model of, you know, the user comes in and then is routed to a number of different, um, large language model applications that are uh, suited for specific tasks or trained on a specific vertical of data. Uh, This is something that ChatGPT actually does. Like um, there's this, I think it's still maybe a rumor, maybe it's been confirmed uh, theory that the reason GPT-4 was so um, was so amazing was that uh, it used what's called a mixture of experts, meaning that that the that the same large model had been trained multiple times, and then when you asked a question, you could kind of get routed into different areas of the model or different different kind of sub models to answer specific questions. So if you had a really math focused question, you'd it, it didn't exactly work like this, but you could kind of be routed into a, a, a part of the model that was particularly good at math or particularly good at history or particularly good at conversation. And so the, the ChatGPT app store, which um, was launched just a couple weeks before the ousting, um, was potentially a kind of a version 2 of this mixture of experts model where you build out all these custom GPTs that have been trained on specific data sets and conditioned for specific tasks and then you you have kind of a master router or either either that's a human right now or or kind of a a, a a like a model that allows you to route your question to wherever you wherever you want so a lot of people online are joking about this this one chatgpt App uh, called Laundry Buddy that's just supposed to help you find where to do your laundry or how to do your laundry, and it's very very silly. Um, and it seems like you know potentially like the worst, the like the worst use case of the most unnecessary one. But I think there's actually potentially something in that in the sense that um, that the that the the, the near term future of these systems might be having a having a a custom fine tuned model for every possible question or or area of questions that you could ask and then routing the user into the right area efficiently so then they can get a really, really accurate answer that has access to specific data and access to and and kind of understands what type of question uh, is going to be asked um, and just kind of improve the actual output. And so um, the ChatGPT App Store launches and then of course, just a few weeks later, um, Adam D'Angelo votes to remove Sam Altman as CEO and the most interesting thing and the reason why I'm focusing on Adam for this is because the other three board members involved in, Altman, in in Sam Altman's ouster, they resigned. So Helen Toner, Tasha McCauley, and Ilya are off the board and then Greg and Sam are also off the board. So Adam D'Angelo is the only one from the previous board that's still on the board. And now they brought on uh, Larry Summers and Brett Taylor. and Um, And they're planning on adding some more people. But it's very, it's just very interesting that he's the only one that kind of made it through. And I think there's, you know, there's one, there's one story, there's one narrative here where, you know, he's, he is like acting irrationally, but uh, it's kind of, it like we, we we just don't have all the data for where this went, and there was this very interesting exchange. Adam was really really quiet during the whole OpenAI drama, and obviously um, the the whole OpenAI team really rallied around Sam, and uh, and Microsoft came out and supported Sam. Um, but Amjad Mashad, the uh, CEO of Replit, tweeted. Uh, I've known Adam D'Angelo for many years, and although I have not spoken to him in a while, the idea that he went crazy or is being vindictive over some feature overlap or any of the other rumors seems just wrong. It's best to withhold judgment until more information comes out. And Adam actually retweeted this um, almost as like a smoke signal to kind of say like, hey, look, there's like something else going on. Um, So, We don't know, um, but then of course, after Sam comes back and the new board is in place, Sam and Adam wind up having Thanksgiving together and it seems like they're kind of healing the divide. It's still unclear where this all will go and i'm sure there'll be a ton more stories coming out in the next few months but i thought it was interesting to dive into and so you know you you kind of have to make up your own mind you know adam is still on the open ai board was this motivated by competitive pressure is it a personal thing with sam competition is it ai doom fear you know only time will tell But at the very least, now you know the full story of Adam D'Angelo and can make up your own mind. So thanks for listening.